My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. If you'd like to help us make more content, consider joining the Patreon. You can also bookmark our affiliate links to Amazon and DriveThruRPG to support the show with each purchase. Want a free way to help the show? Give it a review on your favorite podcast platform, or like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Finally, if you'd like to be on the show, or think you know a great guest, contact me on the Discord server or on Twitter. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome everybody, today I have Kelsey with me. Welcome Kelsey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to get to nerd out and talk TTRPGs. Oh yes, it's the best. Kelsey, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself and how you got started in the tabletop role-playing space? Totally. So I am, I think, still a relatively new occurrence of things, but I think something we're all hoping we'll see more of. I am a second-generation dungeon master. So my dad was my first dungeon master, and I learned how to play Dungeons & Dragons from him and have gotten back into it in recent years and I'm currently running two campaigns and then posting videos, tips and ideas over on TikTok at DND Trees. So I've been getting to connect more with the community and learn from all of the great advice everyone has and it's been such a blast. And what was the first version of DND that you started with? So I started playing with third edition. I didn't run a full campaign and start playing a full campaign until 3.5. I've only DM'd, though, in 5th edition D&D. I, I kind of lost my love for TTRPGs for a few years and then found it again during the pandemic, as I think so many people did. Do you want to talk about that journey at all? Sure, happily. So I'm, I, I'm really lucky to come from a very nerdy family, a family that loves games. And it was great to learn about Dungeons & Dragons from my dad. But I was a teen girl in middle school playing at a table of middle-aged men. And the way those two demographics play games are very, very different. And so I just really didn't see a lot of myself in the game of Dungeons & Dragons until much later in life. And with the rise of live plays, with, I mean, just really the internet and the space for nerds on the internet getting so much more mainstream in so many ways, I started realizing that, no, there is a way to play TTRPGs more broadly and D&D more specifically in the ways that I want to. And that there are lots of people like me that are doing this. And and there's honestly almost no wrong way to play Dungeons and Dragons unless someone leaves the table crying and they don't want to be crying. I think that maybe segue is good into one of the topics you mentioned, the safety tools. Yeah, safety tools are something that I'm super passionate about in this space. I think especially as a a woman in the space, which is still, I mean, there's massive communities of women in Dungeons and Dragons, but also an enormous wealth of horror stories on the internet. And that was one of the things that really kept me from getting re-engaged with Dungeons and Dragons for a long time. And I hear from my players regularly as we're checking in before sessions, I will get thanks from them for training all of us in safety tools that we use at the table because their other games don't have those, haven't had robust session zeros, and they have the tools and the confidence now that if someone starts going into a topic at a table that they're uncomfortable with, they do feel empowered to say, actually, like, we need to pause and check in on this. I'm not comfortable with this being a scene that we're role-playing together, or I'm not even sure that the dungeon master is comfortable right now. And having all of those tools, I think, are so important to keep the hobby robust to keep people that are new to the hobby in the hobby 
because honestly, one bad experience can really scare someone off. And, and there's so much talent and so much creativity out there that I just want every player that wants to get to play pretend at whatever age they are to be able to do that. So my favorite safety tool, the one that I use at all of my games, including one shots, is I give all of my players imaginary remote controls. And so, especially because I play with so many new players, if they forgot to do a cool ability their player ha their character has, they forgot to ask an NPC a question, anything like that within a reasonable frame of time, they can press that rewind button. And we'll go back to that scene, we'll retcon whatever needs to be retconned and move forward from there. Similarly, they have a fast forward button. And if there's something that's happening in a scene, even if their character is not in that scene, they can press the fast forward button and I will give the highlights, the cliff notes, the bullet points, whatever that is, of what they needed to know from that scene and we'll just move forward. And then pause is a way for us to always be able to pause, to check in, to make sure everyone's having a good time, to know that they always have the ability to stop and ask questions. If I fumbled in describing something, if something just isn't clear, but also to pause and check in and say like, hey, I would really like to run a scene where we talk about the fact that our characters almost died last session is everyone okay having a conversation that would talk about like funerary arrangements for our characters? And that's, you know, that's the like lower end of kind of the extremes of what those conversations might be, but maybe we haven't talked about it and someone's grandparent just died and now is not the moment for funerary arrangements to be something that we're role-playing at what's supposed to be our fun time hobby. And then stop is the same thing. A lot of other tables use the X card or the red card. The remote control has a stop button and myself and that player go and check in and figure out what's going on. And that might mean we're done with the session for the day and that's perfectly okay. You know, I hadn't heard of the remote control analogy, but I really like that. I think probably pause and rewind are a little bit more commonly done, even, even not explicitly like hey, I have a remote control, I can stop the game, but just to say, hey, I, you know, I have a question about the scene or whatever, or hey, I missed this thing, I forgot this thing on my turn, can we just kind of redo that quick? But the fast-forwarding one is interesting to me because I definitely have been a player in scenarios where I'm like, I'm really not super invested in this piece of content or whatever, like, can we just skip to the next, like, piece of it? Do you find that kind of giving them the remote control and giving them permission up front at the beginning of the session helps to just give them permission to use those controls? That's that's exactly my idea behind it, and especially looking at, like you mentioned, rewind and pause. Yes, ideally every person at their table is going to feel super confident and comfortable asking for either of those things that those buttons on their remote controls enable. But I love running for new groups of players. I love running for people that are new to TTRPGs. I also run for a lot of like introverts. And so giving them tools and letting them know that I expect them to have those questions, to have those needs, I think really makes people feel a lot more comfortable doing it. And, and same thing for me with fast forward. I mean, I've been at sessions where suddenly, and I don't know if that person was having a really rough week or if this is just an area that they like to role play, they started graphically describing torturing a captive that we had. And I was like, hey, could we just get the information from this scene and assume that it works? Because I really don't want to listen to you describe like pulling off someone's fingernails or whatever it is you're going to do to this captive. Yeah, and that, especially for areas where it could make people uncomfortable. 
And then I assume you probably just chalk it up to a role of some sort to just say, how does this scene resolve? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, in that example, I just cannot, I, we set, we do a robust session zero and I give everyone a like a limit survey before we start. And so I just don't allow that. But in that instance, I would just say like, cool, let's just roll for it. We'll just gamify and not role play it out kind of thing. And, and that works really well for all of us. And, and it, I also always say like, Hey, to whatever players whose scenes are getting fast forward to, as long as I'm comfortable with the content of it, to say like, hey, if y'all want to hop onto the Discord after the session, we can voice channel this out if we want to just do this over chat, whatever that might be. So that player, if they wanted that experience, and it's one that I'm comfortable running for them, they can still have that experience as well. Sure, it just doesn't have to be with the whole group necessarily. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do, do you find that having those controls as well maybe speeds up some things that are happening in like one shots and stuff? I think it's really helpful for one shots. I think it gives people the tools that they need to be able to cover everything and to also give them the tools to really focus in on what's going to be most fun for them. I also think it just it gives everyone a bit of a especially one shots among a group that hasn't played together before. It gives everyone a little bit of an introduction. We talk through everything works. We don't just hop directly into things. And I found that can be really helpful just to start building that trust. And I, I do other things with one shots where I have us go around the table and start building relationships between everyone's characters as well. But I think just as like an icebreaker, talking about safety tools and talking about as we're doing this, our number one priority is to make sure everyone is having fun and here are the tools that you can use if at any point you aren't having fun, I think can address a lot of that like social anxiety that might come with otherwise interrupting and saying like, actually, I forgot to do this thing and I'm going to be beating myself up about it. Can we go back and do it? Or actually, can we not talk about this? Whatever that might be. I think it just helps make sure that we can focus on the great parts of TTRPGs, which is having a blast with our buds. Yeah, I love that. And it even kind of reminds me of something as simple as like traveling. And sometimes the travel or the journey is like the cool and the fun part. And sometimes it's not. And so totally. Sometimes you just want to be at the dungeon and doing the thing or or whatever. Yeah, I definitely have had that experience in my homebrew world for the longest time. I just said everything, the whole world was the three days travel from each other. Because <laughs> that's about how long I felt like travel could be interesting. But I recently got a, a, a third party supplement that has new travel rules. Each member of the party has a certain like role that they fit. They, they have different abilities. And it, it's been a fun way to plan for some longer travel and, and break out of my comfort zone as a DM a little bit as well. So there's some weird physics going on if every every place is three days away from every other place. Hey, you know, <laughs> weird physics, it's a magical world. Who knows? Maybe, you know, the gods just shorten distances if they know where you're going. <laughs> I'm just out of curiosity, what is the supplement that you mentioned? It's called Uncharted Journeys. It's really excellent for any other DMs or even GMs. It could definitely be applied to something other than Dungeons and Dragons that are looking for a way to supplement their travel. And it's kind of inspired by, you know, the journey of Lord of the Rings is the journey itself, not the, you know, they're epic battles, but the big part is the journey and trying to create those epic journeys in Dungeons and Dragons campaigns as well. I will have to give that one a look after yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned that you give your players a survey. Do you want to talk about mm -hmm. what, what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So I am <laughs> probably surveys are what defines my Dungeons and Dragons, my DMing style more than anything else. I'm a big survey DM. 
So if anyone's ever going to come over to play at my apartment for a one shot or something like that, I send them a survey in advance and make sure they're comfortable being around casual drinking. If someone's going to bring their pet, I make sure we don't have any allergies. I explain that we're going to go through any topics people might be uncomfortable touching upon at, during our game and ask if they don't want to say them at the table, they can send them to me directly. And so that's the first survey anyone ever gets from me. And then I do send them as well a safety tool and consent checklist. And there's some great templates out there that have already been created. The one that mine is based on is for from the TTRPG safety toolkit. And it would, appears in the consent and gaming supplement that Sean Reynolds and Shanna Germain, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, published for Monty Cook Games. And you can just Google that and find it for free on the internet and then copy the Google form and make a new version that's based on your needs. And it lets people on a spectrum of green, it's the stoplight spectrum. So green means go, red means stop, yellow, slow down, or maybe I'm not comfortable with this. And talks about horror elements. I talk about romance at the table. People are comfortable with NPC romance, player to player romance, character, player, character, player, character, <laughs> not player to player romance. Um, as well as like social and cultural issues like genocide or xenophobia, terrorism, all kinds of things just to clarify. And, you know, I had, this is something I've only recently started doing. I've been playing with one of my campaigns for a year and I'm starting my new campaign. I'm running the Wild Beyond the Witchlight right now. And I gave this to all of them. And I was like, actually, I should do this with the other party, too. And I found out that, you know, I had a player that, you know, had concerns about rats in the game. And I felt awful because we've had scenes with rats where they're fighting rats before. And that player just hadn't said anything, even though that had been something that she was uncomfortable with. So I think even if you know someone really well, if you've been playing with your gaming group for ages, it's always worth doing this. I ran a little three shot for my mom and my dad during the pandemic, just like over Zoom, they were playing next to each other. My dad was teaching my mom for the first time how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And my mom has fears about mushrooms. And obviously I've known this woman for my entire life and I had no idea that was a topic that, you know, she had like a horror elements around mushrooms would have unsettled her. So I think even with groups that you've been playing with for ages, it's worth doing that just to find out those things that might not be a big deal, but they would rather not have show up or, you know, a big secret fear that they've been keeping from you for the whole time you've known them. I know for my wife, it's spiders. There's no spiders. <laughs> totally. I have very minor, but spectrophobia, which is fear around mirrors and mirror horror is such a frequent trope, especially in D&D &D and TTRPGs. And so that's always the example I give of like, yes, like this is not something that would be scary to everyone. But if we had mirror horror in a D&D &D session, I was playing it like I'm not sleeping for a couple of nights. So it's always better just check and find out because you never know what strange things folks might be uncomfortable with. Well, and also on the, like you said that you had a player that you had run some stuff for with the rats and you just had no idea. I think when you don't have those safety tools up front, it's easy to to just kind of get in the headspace of like, well, everybody else seems to be okay with this. So like, I'll just kind of, you know, deal with it until we get through it. And I guess the thing that could be happening is everybody could be in that same mindset, but nobody's saying anything because everybody else thinks that everybody else is okay with it. Exactly. So the reason I ended up sending a survey to everyone is because I was planning on introducing that growing evil faction in the North are cannibals. And I was like, I really do need to make sure everyone is okay with me describing cannibalism because that is an iffy thing. And I found out I'd always been really nervous about casting dominate person or anything as a, a baddie 
on the party and every single one of them was completely comfortable with mind control. And I was like, okay, I was not planning on that being a thing, but all of you are very comfortable with this. And now it opened up doors for me as well as a DM to be like, oh, everyone's super comfortable with this thing that feels scary or uncomfortable. That is a plot line that we can explore now. So it, it as many doors as it like closed slightly or anything like that, it also opened up a ton of opportunities for me as well, which is not something I necessarily considered when I thought about implementing it as a DM. Well, and thinking about it now, it's almost like you're you're just filtering the content, right? Stuff that people don't want, and you're going to get back to all of the things that people are okay with and are going to enjoy the most anyways. Exactly, exactly. And, and my thing is, I, I always want everyone to leave the table feeling great about what we just did. I always have feedback, spaces for feedback at the end of sessions. I also always have an anonymous feedback form running through Google Forms. So if anyone has feedback they don't want to say to my face or they don't want tied back to them personally, to just have that so that like people know that they have the resources to reach out and say something if they weren't comfortable or if they are worried they did a bad job in the combat and like want to talk that through with everyone. All of that just to make sure everyone walks away feeling great. Um, and you mentioned before we started recording about compassionate GMing. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my ethos that I, I've like my niche that I found in TikTok of just really creating tools for GMs that their interest is in really giving their players a profound experience that minimizes. And obviously, you know, I, I just was jokingly, but nonetheless, like shouting profanity at my party on Saturday because they totally want to be in a combat that I thought was going to be way harder than it was. There's certainly that competitive aspect. But minimizing that in the grand scheme of thinking about TTRPGs and really focusing on bringing compassion and, you know, recognizing that players have robust lives away from the table and none of that should, you know, come in, like your plot should not get in the way of them being a healthy, happy person. So, you know, I knew one of my players recently had been having a tough time at work and I was planning on having her character have a pretty intense confrontation with someone from their backstory that was going to involve me as an NPC, you know, really tearing this player character apart in a way that is knows that character very well and was intensely personal and deliberately cruel. And so I, I knew that player was having a tough time at work and, and flat out reached out to her before the session and said, Hey, this can happen whenever. This is not time pressing. This does not happen. If it have to happen at this next session, I had an idea that I would love to do an intense scene, pulling in some stuff from your character's backstory. Is it okay for that to be this session? And then still, as we went into that scene, having gotten her consent, I paused once I introduced who the character was. I reminded that player that I you know, really care about her and I love the character that she's playing and I'm going to be playing an NPC that hates her and hates a lot of the things that make her her and we ran the scene and afterwards we paused again and we hugged and checked in and and it just it made it all feel really safe and comfortable and knowing my players really well and knowing their characters really well also just unlocks so many incredible story moments you know we had a pretty intense dungeon crawl that the players came out of and immediately went into like a really like lighthearted role play moment and I wanted to still ground the story back in the atrocities that they had seen at the dungeon. And so I wrote uh, nightmares for each of them to have that evening when they finally find their rest after the drunken debauchery they were getting up to. And one of my players, as I'm describing the nightmare her character has, 
immediately just bursts into tears. And we have all of these safety tools to make sure she's comfortable crying at the table. We don't need to stop all of that. And I had just gotten to know her character so well that what I described aligned perfectly with some short story writing she had been doing from her character's perspective in her free time. And it was just exactly what those characters' fears would have been. And so I think really paying attention, getting to know your players, getting to know their characters, unlocks such a rich, robust part of role play and TTRPGs. That is really where, for me, the magic really lies. And it's cool that through those safety tools that you're able to lean into some of those moments that would probably be difficult to pull off had you not had those safety nets there in the first place. Exactly. I mean, this group that I'm playing with, my my main campaign, I'm, I've been running Wild Beyond the Witchlight, and I don't know, they're speeding through. We might be halfway through already. But the other group is playing in my homebrew world, which I do think as a DM, it, it's a more like intimate experience. It requires a little bit more trust with your party to share this imaginary world that you're creating and to have them love it and engage with it at that level, I think is a little bit more intimate. But all of those people were strangers to me when we started playing. And I think creating a foundation with the robust session zero, with all the safety tools that we use, with asking for their opinion. So after every arc, I do a survey with them about what they're hoping that will happen to their character in the next arc, everything like that really accelerates the trust, but also the friendships that you have. I mean, those people that I'm playing with are now some of my best friends in the whole world because play is such a transformative experience when you're doing it in all the best ways. And where... So you you've mentioned that you that you play with a lot of new players. What is kind of your process for like setting up either a new campaign or one shots or what does that kind of look like for you? Yeah, totally. And and there's been some lessons learned for me along this way as well. So I'm lucky I live in a pretty big city and so through local gaming stores, through a couple, you know, local gaming meetup groups and things like that, I'm able to pretty quickly fill a campaign as soon as I want to start running one. I had hoped to find someone else to run the Wild Beyond the Witchlight for me, but eventually I had to just suck it up and DM it. So when I am posting to fill a campaign, I post a fair amount of detail, try to give a brief about the campaign, any content warnings that there may be in there. I talk about kind of who I am as a DM, uh, that we will be using safety tools because obviously not everyone in the TTRPG space has warmed to safety tools and that can dissuade some people from even reaching out about the campaign. Uh, and a little bit I am writing to potentially scare people off. So with the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, I really emphasize that this is potentially a campaign that can be run without a single moment of combat. We've already had lots of combat in our campaign, but I didn't want anyone that was going to be really unhappy that they weren't getting to, you know, roll their D20 and cut someone's head off every single session. I then do a screening interview with everyone that reaches out to me. And I'm specific also in asking for what their initial outreach to me will include. Because for me, one of my big pet peeves as a GM is players that don't follow basic directions. And so I include specific follow-up instructions for them. And that's a way for me to also identify people that aren't going to read what I send them, aren't going to engage in that way. And I do screening interviews and I talk to them about, you know, their experience in TTRPGs, what they're really looking for, what their comfort levels are with different things, if there's specific kinds of play they're looking for or not. I ask about their favorite books, TV shows, movies, actual plays, all of that to just get an idea of the genres that they think are interesting. 
And then I've recently started, I run a one shot for any prospective group that I'm going to be bringing into a campaign as a trial run for me to get a read for all of them to see if everyone plays together really well at the table. But also it's important to me that they all get a trial run of me as a GM and can decide if I'm for them. Because I do know that I have a, a somewhat niche style of GMing, again, really focused on this trust building, creating space that we can be in, intimate and create you know, brave, bold choices together. And some people do just want to roll dice and chop heads off. And that's not kind of the D&D games that I tend to run. Uh, and I found that one shot is super important. I did not always do the one shot. I did everything but that previously. And I had a whole D&D party that I ended up having to like break up with after five sessions because they didn't engage with the world in ways that I found really satisfying when this was my homebrew setting. But also they were just really disrespectful to have over to my apartment to play here. And eventually I was like, I don't want to keep running for all of you. And so there was a whole group that I just stopped playing with because I didn't do a trial one shot first and I didn't know what I was getting into. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when you are playing with people that you may not know ahead of time. The one shot that you run is that, do you run the same one shot every time or do you have kind of a rotation of one shots that you use for that screening? Yeah, so for that, what I'm really looking to do is to run a one shot that I feel like captures the feel of the campaign I'm hoping to put together. So for the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which is a low combat, heavy exploration, heavy role play, uh, module that is put out by Wizards of the Coast. The one shot I ran for that screening was the Salted Legacy, which is from the Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel book. It's their level one one shot, which is also low combat, heavy role play, heavy exploration. And so for me, it also gives the players a chance to see like, is this thematically interesting to me? Is this type of gameplay what I want to be doing? And that's kind of where I'll try to align. You know, we're talking about maybe running Spelljammer-esque, you know, D&D &D in the Astral Sea campaign at some point. I would probably run a one shot that is in a version of that setting because D&D &D in space is not fun for everyone and having guns and, you know, flintlocks or blunderbusts or whatever you want to call them as part of your D, D game isn't fun for everyone so there's all those different elements and i think it's great to try to hone in on a one shot that will give a similar experience to players yeah i think that makes sense especially if you are running vastly different campaigns you're going to want to have a one shot that's going to match more or less what they're going to see long term exactly so how many games do you have running kind of at any given time so I'm currently running two campaigns. One is every other week on the weekends, and one is a weekly weeknight campaign. I will probably keep it to two at a time, just so that I do have some space for other hobbies. And by other hobbies, I do just mean painting Dungeons & Dragons minis. But I, I do also do pickup games. I do one-shots. I really liked the heist book that Wizards of the Coast just put out. So I'm hoping to start running just some like heist one-shot pickup games would be kind of fun. And then constantly just hoping that someone will want to run D&D &D and I can play as a player. That is the trick after you become the dungeon master is to yep. try to find your way back in as a player. Totally. But it is nice. I, you know, if, if there's anyone listening that is debating becoming a dungeon master and isn't quite sure if they are ready to do it, if they can do it, I mean, it is so fulfilling. It is such a fantastic experience, but it also in a way that being a player, you don't always get to be. 
when you are the one dungeon mastering, you get to be really choosy about who you play with because there is such a shortage of DMs out there that you can be really choosy about the kinds of games you want to play, the modules that you want to run, who you want to have at your table. And then you just have really grateful players that bring you delicious snacks and treats and are so grateful to be there. So I definitely encourage everyone to at least try DMing, be brave and go ahead and do it because it, it is just the best. Um, it sounds like most of your games are in person. I do. I, I prefer playing in person. Again, it's a thing of the luxury of living in a, a big city is I, I can. There are enough people nearby that I can. I've run, I've played in virtual games before and I've run some virtually during the pandemic. But I, I just, there's something about A, not continuing to have a bunch more Zoom meetings as someone who has a lot of Zoom meetings in, in their grown up life. But also just for me, for role play, I feel like it's so much easier to have a natural back and forth and to make sure everyone's being heard when we're all sitting around a table versus little boxes on a screen. But I would happily play in a virtual game if that was the only option. But I'm currently trying to find someone <laughs> that will just come run D&D out of my home. <laughs> Do you have any specific tools or books that you really like to use during your games that kind of help you run a good session? Oh my gosh, so many. I really like, if you are looking to run in-person D&D, my favorite tool for maps and minis is 1985 Games Dungeon Craft. They are, uh, you can use wet erase markers on them and they are flat terrain pieces and they have maps to put them all on. So they take up very little storage space and you can create really robust, interesting maps for your players and everything's movable on those maps. And from a storage option, it takes up much less space than having tons and tons of physical terrain. Also, it's significantly cheaper, although obviously some of those physical terrain pieces are absolutely gorgeous and incredible. They are also quite costly. Um, as far as other resources that I like, I'm constantly buying third-party D&D content. It is honestly becoming a bit of a shopping problem. But there's some really great creators out there that are making stuff. I, I love everything that Eventer Games puts out. They just put out a new book that I backed on Kickstarter called Heretic's Guide to Devotion and Divinity that has all kinds of incredible additions to rules around religion. And it gives you instructions on how to build a pantheon. It has a guide to building out stat blocks for demigods and gods. Some really great resources there, as well as just so, such fantastic settings that really draw from such beautiful mythologies and world cultures. Tales of Sina Una is a fantastic one. Borikubos is another D&D supplement that draws from real world cultures and is written by creators of those cultures. Um, and then if you're looking for just little tidbits of inspiration, Tales Arcane is a follower both on TikTok and also on Patreon and creates such incredible third-party content, adventures, stat blocks, little mini encounters that you can drop into any regular game session, as well as some great custom subclasses and classes. Uh, so I have a player that's about to dip in to a subclass that he wrote that is a pact, warlock pact that your warlock patron is a deck of tarot cards, which <laughs> is fantastic for that character because her whole backstory is tied in with the goddess of fortune telling. So it's going to be an incredible warlock dip. So those are some of my favorites, but the list could literally just go on and on and on. I love it. I love getting to hear what, uh, like what people are using at the table, whether that's yeah. physical or, or virtual. I'll also just say everything Cobalt Press has ever put out is incredible, and I've never been more excited 
than I am about the Black Flag Project and their new TTRPG that they're putting out. I've been reading the early releases and it looks like such a cool version and and D&D very much the way that I play D&D. And obviously it will no longer be D&D, it'll be whatever they are calling it, but that is a very exciting project that I'm excited for. I know there's been a handful of kind of splinter projects since everything that Wizards has gotten up to. I haven't followed any of them super closely. Uh, yeah. So I know I've seen the Black Flag name and stuff get shared around a little bit, but I haven't haven't kept up with much of it. Yeah, I'm a heavy inspiration giving DM. I recently had to put a cap on how many inspirations players can have because they were just hoarding them for big battles. And so like our rogue was using inspiration to just give herself infinite advantage and infinite sneak attacks and big battles. And I was like, guys, this isn't working. And Black Flag, they get rid of what in D&D is called inspiration and use luck instead. And you can have up to five luck at a time. But if you ever have five luck and you are supposed to g- gain a new one, either by the DM or I think if you roll a nat one, you automatically get one. You have to roll a D4 and your luck resets to that number, which I thought was a really That's great a way huge. to encourage players to actually use that instead of just sitting and hoarding it. You don't ever want to really be at your max capacity because exactly. you can lose it. Exactly, which I thought was really fun. And also players love rolling dice. So having it be anything that makes them have to roll another dice will make them slightly less grumbly about it. And it just turns it into another mechanic. Exactly. So it's like, oh, it's not it's not my rule. It's the game. <laughs> exactly. What? So what, when you are preparing for a session, kind of what is your process for getting ready before the session? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's, it is very different, a module versus homebrew. For the module, I'll share that because I feel like that's how a lot of people first get into D&D. You know, I've, I read through the whole book, which I know not everyone does, but especially The Wild Beyond the Witchlight has a lot of stuff that's foreshadowed in the beginning of the adventure that comes back at the very end. So I read the whole book, and then as I'm preparing and kind of the chunks of each adventure, I will read through and take my own notes based on the book and prep everything if I'm seeing that there is any dialogue that could be a little bit better enhanced. If there's anything that I think would be more fun for my players if it existed. So we've got an alchemist artificer and they're like, oh yeah, there's a you know basilisk body in the room, a, a like dead corpse of a basilisk. And I was like, oh, well, like I'll create an opportunity where you can harvest from the basilisk and then create something as an alchemist from it. So I definitely think reading through, thinking about specifically your players and their character sheets and creating and trying to create in each session opportunities for most, if not all of them, to have a little spotlight moment. And as you play with all of them, you'll know more what that is. Maybe it's an opportunity for them to role play with a specific kind of NPC. Maybe it is an opportunity for the bard to get to perform. Maybe it is an athletic challenge, even if there's not going to be any combat in the session, to give the fighter a chance to shine. Really trying to create those moments. And then I pull out maps and minis, kind of figuring out what's going to be necessary if I'm not sure what they're going to do. I have a couple of kind of flip books of maps that I can just have ready. Pulling any music. I recently had a bunch of my followers on TikTok recommend music options for me because I just started adding in music to my sessions. And I've been just pulling from Bardify, which is a YouTube channel that has great hour-long TTRPG music and soundscapes, which is about how much I can handle running while I'm also running D&D. I can't do the like soundboard, really custom, beautiful music and sound effects that some people do. 
And then a big thing for how I like to run my games is I, because I play in person, I do a lot of physical props. So when the party is arriving to a new town, there will be an announcements board that will tell them what's going on in the town and give plot hooks and quest hooks to them. If they find a letter or a note, they will physically find that letter and that note and be able to hold it in their hands. I bought a 40 pack of like very cheap keys and like very pretty, but you know, antique looking keys off of everyone's favorite easy marketplace on the internet. And I, when a player character finds a key now, I hand them the key that they found. And all of those kind of things add such great little magic to sessions, I think. Those physical props are cool. It's something that I would like to do, but all of my games are online, so. (laughs) An easy way to add it in that I think is fun, you have to have players that are game for it, but my players in the homebrew campaign write letters home and they get letters back from their loved ones. And so you could fully do that with a virtual game. You just have to exchange addresses with your players and you can have a whole, and I think that also really helps with character development is, you know, who are they writing home to? Is it a best friend? Is it their mom? And all those letters. And if you, like me, like to torment them by having a threat go and visit all of their families, you can start laying those pieces in and and really terrify them with it. That's a really fun, just out of the game way to kind of keep the game going and just maybe add a little bit of magic to what could otherwise be a relatively mundane life. (laughs) Exactly. I know I'm never really thrilled about opening the mailbox, but if I thought I was going to get a letter, a D&D letter in the mail, I probably would be a little bit more excited about doing that. Yeah, buy a couple of wax seals and, you know, really level it up. It's so much fun. And now one of my players, uh, her character's mom in the story, it loves to garden. And so as spring happens, I start pressing flowers that her mom will include in the letters that she will exchange with her daughter over the next year. And so there's all kinds of moments to really create some magic for your players with that stuff. That's really cool. Do you have, do you use like physical coins or anything? So I don't tend to use physical coins at all. I have, you know, you know, a D2, basically a heads and tails coin that we'll use for things. And I do use physical tokens to remind my players of how much inspiration that they have. I found that's really helpful when players are struggling to remember to use it. They will just literally put a gem on top of their D20 to remind themselves that they have inspiration that they want to use. But otherwise, I don't tend to get into the coins too much. I feel like that would be a slippery slope and suddenly take up a lot of space in my house. (laughs) I've always said it would be fun to get like a big pack of D&D coins or some type of a little little gold coins or something to hand out at a physical game. But yes, that could get expensive. Is there anything else you would like to chat about before we wrap up? I don't think so. You know, I'm I'm super excited to always chat about D&D and, and slowly start learning about other TTRPG options from all the incredible people on the internet that are representing them. I am getting later this summer, it was a Kickstarter, a new TTRPG that's called Household. And it is a kind of Regency fairy court inside an abandoned British estate. So it's just really just the example that you know, if you are sitting here and you don't think D&D is for you, there's literally a TTRPG for every single niche interest that exists out there. And it is such a great hobby and a great way to bring a little bit more creativity to your life. So if you haven't checked it out, if you haven't DM'd or GM'd, I can only encourage you to try it. And if you need beginning tips on either of those things, you can find me over on TikTok doing very short little tip videos at D&D-E-Trees, D&D-Trees. 
and I'm always happy to share advice and any, I have lots of baby DMs and GMs that reach out over direct message as well. And I'm always happy to brainstorm if you're running the wild beyond the witch light. I have lots of tips and tricks I could share over there as well. Well, Kelsey, it has been fantastic talking with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. So happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me on.